Well, one morning, a very excited little girl came home from Sunday school to share something, waving a piece of paper with her mother, saying, Mom, Mom, Sunday school teacher says, I created the most unusual Christmas card she's ever seen. Her mother took one look at the Christmas card and had to agree with the Sunday school teacher. Not wanting to discourage the child, she says, I see, this is a very uh, creative Christmas card, sweetie. Why are all these people in a plane? Oh, mom, she said knowingly, that's the flight into Egypt. Oh, okay. And, and who's the mean gentleman in the front? Well, that's Pontius. He's the pilot. Okay. I see you have Joseph, you have Mary, and you have the baby Jesus. She asked the little girl, but sweetie, who, who's the really big, large guy in the back? The daughter at that point, being a little disappointed in her mother and exasperated, shaking her head, said, Mom... That's round John Virgin. <laughs> I wonder if maybe you might be a little bit like this little girl when we hear Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. That when you hear that text, all we tend to think about is the nostalgia and sentiment that belongs to Christmas. And it's understandable. That's pretty much the only time we actually hear Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 read to us. So it's understandable that we might think of these things, but a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But we might be like this little girl if, if when we hear this, all we tend to think about is the nostalgia and sentiment of Christmas. We might have some of the facts correct, but the picture is not quite clear. Now, let me just be upfront. I do love Christmas holiday season, the food, the festivities, the fun, the decorations, the singing, the music. I even like shopping on Black Friday. I tell my wife it's the closest thing I can do to hunting without driving three hours away. I like the whole bit. I buy eggnog as soon as it's available. The day after Thanksgiving, the Christmas decorations go up, and I demand that my kids all we play is Christmas music for one whole month. I love the Christmas season. But the reality is... Isaiah chapter 9, that's passage that we're looking at for the next several weeks, it encapsulates what Christmas is really all about, and the reality is all the things I just mentioned have very little to do with actually what Christmas is. Christmas is, after all, Christ's Mass, the coming of Christ. So if we look at this passage, and that's why we chose to look at it for five weeks, to really get a sense of what these titles mean so that we really can appreciate why this passage has been so beloved by Christians throughout the ages. In order to do this, we're going to look at this text from three different vantage points, this concept of mighty God, from three different perspectives. Number one, we need to understand the context in which Isaiah brings this prophetic word. Now, last week, if you were here, David Erickson did a great job of giving you the immediate context of Isaiah and Ahaz and what was going on in Israel's time. I'm going to broaden that context a little bit further to include all of canonical history, the redemptive hope that Israel had and why Isaiah's prophecy is so important, especially this title, Mighty God. Secondly, we need to see how Jesus in his earthly ministry was in fact this mighty God spoken of by the prophet. And then third and finally, we need to go to the end of scripture to get a glimpse of this mighty God in his might according to John's revelation. So those are the three pictures we're going to look at to get a sense of mighty God. Let's take the first one, mighty God in Isaiah's day. 
keep yourself in Isaiah as we jump into it, we know that this is a prophetic word that Isaiah the prophet brought to King Ahaz, and unfortunately, it falls on deaf ears. Ahaz is the son of Jotham, who is the grandson of King Uzziah, who is mentioned famously in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, a critical turning point for the nation of Israel. At this time, as we have learned, the Assyrian Empire poses a formidable threat throughout the region, but most immediately, there is a threat from the north, the kings of Israel and Syria. Now, let me just stop there for a second. You may be a little confused. What do you mean the kings of Israel? Are we talking about Isaiah and Israel itself? And keep in mind that the monarchy that was established by David, by Saul, by David and Solomon had split into two. There was a civil faction, a civil war, and 10 of the 12 tribes remained to the north creating what was called Israel, also known as Ephraim, and then two remaining tribes in the south became what was called Judah. And so Judah and Israel were no longer one nation, but in fact, two rival nations at that point. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is fearing an alliance between Israel in the north and Syria. So Isaiah comes to the king with a simple message beginning in chapter 7, and the message is Ahaz trusts the Lord. Ahaz trusts the Lord. Faith in God was going to be key to victory for Judah in this time. Ahaz foolishly says no. Even after in chapter 7, verses 10 and following, Isaiah says to Ahaz that the Lord will give you a sign. Ask for any sign to show that you'll be victorious and the Lord will give it to you. And Ahaz, in a a kind of false piety, says, well, it's it's not good to test the Lord. So he refuses to receive confirmation from God. This is where Isaiah's prophecy comes in. That one day there will be a king, and this king will do it right. This king will exercise faith in God. This king, after all the failed kings of Judah and Israel, this coming king will do it right. This king's name will be Wonderful Counselor. This king's name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These were all throne names given to describe this king's reign. This is the immediate context. Isaiah bringing a prophetic word of hope, even though another king of Judah fails to exercise faith in God. But Isaiah said, God's ultimate plan will triumph. Remember, David described last week the political immediate situation that caused the immediate press. What I want to do now is step a bit back and say, why is this so important, not just to Ahaz and this point in time, but why is this prophecy so important throughout all of biblical history such that here we are nearly 3,000 years later still reading this particular text? You see, at this point in Israel's history, the people needed a reminder That God's ultimate plan to bring in the true king, the redeemer, the Messiah, would not, in fact, could not be thwarted. The people needed a reminder that although man gets caught up in the situation and circumstances of his life that causes him to doubt, 
God does not forget his larger plan. God is always pushing forward his larger plan. He keeps the big picture in view. You see, if you were a a faithful Jew or a faithful Hebrew at this time, and you studied Torah like you should, you may have very well, along with the the rest of the nation, been looking for that king, looking for that redeemer, the Messiah, the anointed one. They collapsed all those concepts into one, because after all, that was the grand narrative of Torah, of the Scriptures, that God is bringing forth His King that God is bringing His Redeemer, that God is bringing His Messiah to make all things new, to return to right all that went wrong in the fall. You know, this morning as I was thinking through this, I actually looked at Genesis chapter 3 and, and really thought that, really, if, if you were the kind of person that writes in your Bible, I need to be careful, I'm used to about a lot more space out here. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, In one sense, on Genesis 3, you could put an open parentheses mark, and then all the way over to Revelation 21, you could write the closed parentheses mark. Because, you see, God has been working a plan, and that plan was derailed because of sin and humanity's rebellion. And in a very real sense, from Genesis 3 all the way through to Revelation 21, where it then says again, now God is with man as it should be, you could almost put that closed parenthesis because the narrative picks up again. All between those two parenthesis marks, there is this backdrop that God is bringing the king, bringing the redeemer back to put everything back the way it was supposed to be before Genesis 3 took place. So all throughout the Scriptures, there is this backdrop of God bringing His plan, bringing everything back to the way it should be, but there's also a pattern of potential and failure. So what I want to do now in about five minutes is try to give you the overall arc of all what the Scripture teaches and why the kingdom theme is so important. So often, we miss the forest for the trees as we study Scripture, and we lose sight of the fact that God is working one amazing plan. That plan begins, as we said, in the creation. We see that in the book of Genesis. I have a slide up here behind me. These three slides are going to walk us through the entire thing. Now, what I'm trying to do basically is say, let's talk about what Scripture teaches. Why does this king theme, this king motif so important? And the reason being is that's the motif of Scripture. In the book of Genesis, we see that we have the creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, followed by the fall. In Genesis, we see that the king has created his kingdom, the creation, and his people, Adam and Eve, representing humanity, live under the king's good rule with the king's word. Yet in Genesis chapter 3, it all goes sideways. And so God starts a covenant to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. God was again creating a people for himself because Adam and Eve had rejected his rule. Moses, and we'll keep that slide up there because I'm going to jump back from my notes and that slide. Moses comes on the scene next, a fantastic deliverer. Thousands or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years after Adam and Eve. He's a fantastic deliverer, but he misrepresents God and is as a result is forbidden to enter the promised land in Numbers chapter 20. 
And then we bring Joshua on the scene, and he leads the conquest of Cana. But the conquest is not complete, we see in the book of Judges. And so there is a series of, a cycle of repentance, uh, apathy, sin, and then revival, revival, repentance, and on and on it goes for hundreds of years through the book of Judges. So we see here from Genesis all the way through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, there is this idea that God, the king, makes his creation. And then they, the creation rejects God, and then he gives a man, Abraham, and gives to Abraham his promises. The promises include a people, a place, a provision. And in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, it's all about talking life under God's good rule in that kingdom, what the people are supposed to be like in that kingdom. And then in Joshua and Judges, God brings them into the land, but their faithfulness ebbs and flows. So we see from the very beginning, there is a king with his kingdom and humanity rebels. He starts again with a new people to exercise his kingdom. He teaches them what it is to live under their rule, brings them into a land. That's all what Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges is about. It's all this theme of God is restoring creation back to himself. The narrative continues with the creation of the monarchy and establishing a king, a physical earthly king for God's people. Saul starts this off well enough, but it goes off the rails completely. We looked at this. David takes up where Saul leaves off, and David seems to do it right. It continues with Solomon, his son, and all the while, if you are a faithful Hebrew or or Jew, you are keeping track of the fact that this is all one narrative, that God is the king bringing people back to himself. Now, if you were a Jew at that time, you would have been tempted to ask, Maybe, maybe this great deliverer is Moses. What a great leader. The things that God has done through this man, how fantastic what he did. Moses, through God's power, singularly decimated the most powerful nation in the world to that time. Surely he has to be God's leader. Surely this is the king. But Moses sins and misrepresents God and is sidelined. It's not Moses. Moses is not the great deliverer, but maybe the foretold king is David. After all, David conquers giants. He destroys the enemy of God's people. He establishes them in the land, but he fails. He commits adultery, murder. Clearly, this cannot be the king that we've been looking for, but maybe it's Solomon, his son, and under whose kingship Israel is the most powerful and prosperous it's ever been, especially when you consider 1 Kings 4 and 10. It says that all the nations of the world would come to Solomon to hear his wisdom. Clearly, that's a fulfillment of Genesis 12. All the nations are being blessed. They're all coming to the descendants of Abraham. Clearly, this is it. Peace, prosperity, abundance, justice marks Solomon's reign. This is the Lord's anointed. This is the new kingdom. But then Solomon's sons, soon after he dies, Jeroboam and Rehoboam tear the kingdom apart. And after that, it's a sad laundry list of kings of the people of God who did wicked and great evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we see 1 Samuel all the way through the end of 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's all about how this kingdom ebbs and flows back and forth, and they just deny God. And then you have all the prophetic books, every single one, all the minor prophets, all the major prophets, saying the same thing. Turn back to the king, live under his good rule. 
The only difference between them are the circumstances and situations, but the message is the same. Go back to the king, turn back to the king, live under his good rule. And then we get to the Gospels and the, the New Testament that reveals that the king is finally here. The king is finally here, and that's what the Gospels is about. It's introducing the king, and the book of Acts speaks of how that kingdom begins to spread throughout all humanity. It's not now constrained to just the Jews. It's the Jews and everyone else. And then all the letters of the New Testament, every single one of them from Romans to Jude is talking about how to live life in this kingdom, and the book of Revelation ends with the king being eternal, Jesus, life in the kingdom forevermore. So you see, the Bible's one message is that God is the king and he's established his kingdom and his people live under his rule, but they have rebelled and he is bringing them back. That's the one theme that goes throughout the entirety of scripture. So backtracking, get back to Isaiah. By the time you are someone living in Isaiah's day and you have seen centuries of failure, although there was potential, centuries of betrayal of God, you have either forgotten that you were even looking for a king or you no longer even think it's possible. The drama and discouragement of life is just too overwhelming. It will never happen. That exactly this point in Israel's life that Isaiah delivers this zinger of a promise that there is a child that will be born and he will be all these things. And one of his throne names is Mighty God. Ahaz, you are looking for might in the arms of men. There will come a king who has power and might beyond imagination. This is the one we're calling you to faith to, Ahaz. Before we move on and kind of say, if I was Ahaz, I would do things differently. We have to ask, have we lost sight of God's greater plan in our lives? Or have all the ups and downs, the, the joys and sorrows, the twists and turns of life made us forgot that God is actually working out one master plan? Or are we so focused on our own lives, we don't even realize that our lives are part of something much greater than our own lives? That God is bringing forth a plan that all the scriptures talk about. In that way, we can understand Ahaz. Sure, it may not be a looming king, rival kings threatening warfare, but there's always something in our lives that are tempting us to look for our salvation in other things, isn't there? Whether it's financial security, uncertain future, unstable political environments, we are always tempted to look for strength of arms in something other than the Lord. But it would be many more years until this king would come. And that's why the New Testament opens with these words from Mark's gospel. Now turn over to Mark's gospel with me in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1 opens with these words. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are some powerful words. Those four words, the time is fulfilled. Well, what time? What time was Jesus talking about? The time when a child would be born. 
a son given. See, this isn't necessarily me making that connection. This is what Paul the Apostle says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. This is what he writes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, we have to love what Mark's gospel is doing. In just a few short chapters, he shows, Mark is showing how Jesus Christ is the mighty God spoken of in Isaiah's prophecy, that the king is here in all the power and authority that he really has. Let's just briefly look at Mark's gospel. Number one, Mark chapter one, verse 23 to 28, Jesus has power over the demonic. In the next chapter, Mark chapter 2, Mark shows that Jesus has power to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 4, it shows that Jesus has power over the forces of nature. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus has power over the grave. You see, Mark is not just randomly writing. Mark understands the theme of all of redemptive scripture. And he's saying the king is here and he is mighty God. Look what he does. He has power over the demons, over sin, over nature, and the grave itself. Mark is going somewhere with this. He's building a case to make a point. And if you read those passages, you will notice the same comment everyone has who witnesses these passages. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, they were all amazed. What is this? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In Mark chapter 2, they were all amazed, saying, we've never seen anything like this. In Mark chapter 4, the amazement is clearly implied, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark chapter 5, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. They cannot believe what they are witnessing in the power and might of Jesus as he's displaying his power over these things. As if these narratives were not enough, Mark tops it off with a blatant statement. He's building an argument, building a case till he gets to Mark chapter 8. You see, Mark understands, and Jesus knew very well in his earthly ministry, there was a, um, call it a rumor mill or a gossip mill brewing about him. People, some people thought he was John the Baptist. Some people thought he was Elijah the prophet. So he puts the question to his disciples. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, 29. What do people, or who do people say that I am? And they say, well, the people are saying that you're John the Baptist. People are saying you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Mark records Peter saying, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the king that's to come. And Jesus says, you have it. You see, the Gospel of Mark understands the theme through Scripture, and he's building the case to demonstrate that this Jesus is the King, the mighty God, and there's no power, animate, inanimate, human or spiritual, or which Jesus does not have dominion. I love what John Oswald says in his commentary on Isaiah, on the passage where we started with. He says this, this King will have God's true might about him. That's just what Mark has just displayed. He has power so great that it can absorb all the evil which, the, which can be hurled at it until none is left to hurl. 
as mighty God, Jesus and his earthly ministry looked sin and death right in the face. He said, bring it. He said, bring it. And through his sacrifice, he took it down. Just as Moses, through the power of God, decimated the strongest empire on earth at that time, Jesus decimated death, the strongest ultimate power of all time. And he decimated it. The Puritan John Owen in his book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, was so true. He decimated death and unrighteousness so that all of us who recognize Him as King and bring our allegiance to Him from ourselves, from our own saviors to Him, would have that same victory. Mark starts by saying that the time is fulfilled. He records Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Mark shows that Jesus is in fact that mighty King. Now at this point, I wanted to quote to you uh, a Baptist preacher who I have loved over the years, a black Baptist preacher by the name of S.M. Lockridge. I just love, uh, they knew how to name their kids, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He was a powerful Baptist preacher, most well known for his sermon, Do You Know Him, My King? Rather than just read it to you, I was able to find Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge saying it himself. I want to show you his video clip. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, 
His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him. For yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! I really should end at that point. He's mighty God. You get the point. So we've seen mighty God in Isaiah's day and biblical canon history. We've seen mighty God in Jesus' own day. But that's not the end of the picture. There's one last mighty God in John's revelation. One last perspective we must have. For that, I want to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and read you five verses. Verses 11 through 16. And I'm pretty sure that this is a perspective or a picture of Jesus that our world is very unfamiliar with, but it's one that they must recognize. John writes, Then I saw heaven open and beheld a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I just need to be clear, this is not a different Jesus we are seeing here, not at all. This is an extension of his righteousness and power, but here in Revelation, it's seen in a very physical and forceful manner. It's his righteousness and power seen not so much from the perspective of his redemption, as much as is retribution against sin and evil. And we have to have a view of Jesus that can accommodate what we read here. And if you're not a Christian, you have to have a category for Jesus as we read about Him in the Bible and not simply from popular culture or your own conceptualization. If your categories for Jesus simply end with Him as a baby in a manger you do not have the complete picture. You see, passages like this in Revelation 19 should elicit within us either a wonder and humility that is mingled with gratitude and awe or terror and dread and despair. 
Because the same mighty God who harnesses the forces of nature and orchestrates the events of history for our redemption and eternal salvation is the same mighty God who will crush Satan under his feet and consign rebels to an eternal hell. That's what Revelation is getting at. Born in a manger, died on a cross, wearing a crown of eternity. That's a little bit into next week. For now, we need to remember that Isaiah's prophecy back here in Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy for people who have lost sight of God's greater plan. It is a prophecy for people who are tempted to trust other saviors when dangers loom large. It is a prophecy for people who need to be encouraged that God does not forget. He may take His time. It was many years from delivering this prophecy to when the king appeared. But when he does, he makes all things new. We learned last week that as wonderful counselor, Jesus is someone who comprehends all, understands all, perceives all. As mighty God, he is the king who has the power to topple empires and wicked kingdoms. He has the power to deliver humanity from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. The next two weeks, excuse me, next three weeks, we'll learn about him being the king of eternity which his rule will be one of peace. And we'll learn on Christmas Day that he is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many varied ways Scripture displays Christ to us. And though we think of him this holiday season as the baby in the manger, Lord, we need to remember that this baby is mighty God that He came to conquer sin and death and to crush all rebellion, the rebellion in our culture, the rebellion in our hearts, so that the true kingdom, one of peace and joy and abundance might reign. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.